Welcome to the Hey Salespeople podcast, where we focus on delivering immediately actionable best practices for sales professionals. I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Hey, salespeople. It's my great pleasure to have on the podcast today, Kerry Cunningham. Welcome to the show, Kerry. Thank you. Good to be here. Kerry is a senior director of research at Forrester, and he's in the marketing world, but he covers B2B demand generation, marketing, the sales development function, predictive analytics, AI. There's a whole range of things that he covers, and we'll talk about a lot of those things today. So as we get started, Kerry, I'd like to always ask, what is your favorite sales book of all time and why? What I would go with for this is a book. It's not really a sales book, more of a a kind of a management book. It's called First Break All the Rules. And uh, what I loved about this book and, and still do refer to it really often is it helps really set what's important about how to manage people in an organization. And we tend to focus on big long-term things with our employees, uh, whether it's SDRs, salespeople, or others, when in fact, what people really need to, to do is they need to know what's expected of them. They need to know if they can do what's expected of them. And they need to know if anybody in the organization actually cares about that. And if you don't take care of those things, then all of the other things that you might do, and including compensation, don't really keep your employees engaged. And so that's one that stuck with me for a long time. In addition to the factors that you said, I remember one of the main factors they found was people are more likely to stay if they have a best friend at work. Right. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because, you know, my background uh, educationally is in organizational psychology. And so this is sort of a passion for me. One of the things that I love about the stuff that comes out of uh, Gallup and that's in that book is it's actually based on real science. It's not just somebody sitting in a room making this stuff up. And that question is kind of an odd one. You know, why would... Uh, why would having a best friend at work matter? What really matters about it is that you're in the right place. If you're in a place where you don't have a good friend at work, then you're probably not in a culture in which you're going to be comfortable and you're going to thrive. So it isn't so much the fact of just having a, a best friend who happens to work at your company. It's being in a place where there are other people who have the same kind of goals that you have, uh, look at the world the same kind of way, or trying to do the same things. I do think that that book is super relevant in, in sales, especially in sales management, because one of the biggest challenges in sales, right, is to retain your top performers. And if you know, you know what you need to do as a leader in order to serve your people, you're that much more likely to succeed in the long term. Yeah, that's right. You know, um, when I discovered this book and when I put it into use in the organization, uh, one of the organizations I used to be in, I'm on the marketing side of things, but I was uh, for about 10 years, I was a vice president of operations for a large B2B teleservices organization. So, you know, we had up to 350 or so reps making outbound calls every day on behalf of uh, tech companies, uh, financial service companies, et cetera. So, this was the thing that was uppermost in our minds all the time was how do we keep our best folks engaged, keeping good employees engaged long enough so that uh, <laughs> you got paid back for having uh, hired and trained them was a real issue. And one of the things that we found is that our best reps, the highest producers, were the ones who were least satisfied uh, with the way that they were being treated. And a lot of it had to do with the fact that we would continually raise their quotas, raise their goals, and continually make things more difficult without giving them the right level of support so that they could actually do what was expected of them. So we shifted what was expected of them all the time, and then we didn't 
support them in the right way, to do what was expected of them. And when we figured that out, uh, we started to make a lot of strides. Yeah, this quota increase thing has been something I've had a, a number of conversations with with people on. It's effectively a reduction in the pay per unit effort when you just increase people's quota without giving them something else. That's right. Yeah. And we so often do it because we think that this person or these people can accomplish more, but we don't give them the means to do it. What's the first thing that you ever remember selling? So the first thing that I, I think I ever actually did sell was books door to door as a college job. I was not good at this, but it was going door to door in the summertime selling books, encyclopedias, et cetera. I made a bunch of friends who were really good at it and making a ton of money. I think I maybe broke even for the summer or something like that at best. Taught me a lot though, I'll say that. It taught me one, I am not uh, somebody who's going to go knocking on doors and making a living. But it did really help me understand how I could be good at selling. And eventually, I think I, I was pretty good. What I was able to do was find a, a way of approaching prospects and talking with prospects that was less salesy and more natural for me, but I think also led to a greater likelihood that the prospect would feel okay engaging with me, which I think can be helpful for folks. Maybe we start the demand generation, demand response at the point of inbound response. Right. So a uh, broad topic, but how do you want to get started on that? At Sears Decisions, we work with a lot of our clients who rely on generating demand, uh, inbound leads that come in, somebody fills out a form. That form could have a number of response options from the prospects. So we can talk about that. But then a substantial part of what uh, say a marketer's job is, is to get those inbound leads somehow converted into real prospects that a sales rep could talk to. So we, we work with our clients. I'm working with our clients all day, every day for the last five years, trying to improve the rate at which that is successful. And currently in B2B, the rates at which a lead that comes in on the web through a form even becomes an opportunity. It becomes an opportunity, but you know, between two and eight percent of the time, and often less than that. So, you know, two to eight percent is is a general number across sort of all B two B organizations. But if you're an enterprise application provider or something like that, chances are, if a lead comes in, it's got less than a one percent chance of getting even to the point where a sales rep is engaging with that individual. That's not a very successful process, right? That's No, not, not at all. Why so low? The first one is that if you're a B2B solution provider of some kind, unless you're you know, HB Oracle, Microsoft, chances are you're relatively obscure and, and hardly anybody who isn't a prospect or a competitor or an analyst like me is ever going to come to your website. That's just the truth of B2B. You know, nobody's going there by accident. And B2B buyers, and this is actually one of our most important principles, the buyer in B2B is almost never an individual person. It's a group of people who work together to make a purchase for their organization. And we've got a ton of research around this, but for the vast majority of B2B organizations, your buyer is uh, at least three people and maybe 10 or 12 people that have some influence on that process. And you may have one person who's the ultimate decision maker, but you've got some other key decision makers. You may have two or three people who have a lot of really important input into that buying process. So that's like a simple thing that everybody knows. But here's another thing about that is that all of those people are coming to your website. 
when you're marketing and selling to other organizations, there's a really good chance that if you look in your marketing automation data and compare the number of leads you have to the number of accounts you have, you're going to find that ratio is like two, three, four, five or more leads per account. So at very first, if we take 100 leads that come into your website in a month, it probably only represents probably not more than 50 accounts and maybe as few as 30 or 20 accounts. You've got three or four people from the same organization who are shopping you at the same time. So your conversion rate to an opportunity is very, very unlikely to be better than that to start with, right? Um, and that's like one of those simple things that until you actually go look at it, it's like, okay. I guess assuming you don't attach multiple contacts to an opportunity, but almost nobody does that. Almost nobody does. That's right. Um, we try to get uh, people to, we think absolutely you should, and there's plenty of good tools available to do it. But that's the case today. So first of all, it starts off with a handicap there. Now that handicap should be a strength. Once you realize that you're getting multiple people from the same organization coming to your website, that is a thing that you should be paying attention to. So that's part of the reason. Your conversion rate is almost guaranteed to, to be not more than 50 and, and probably much less than that percent. Second is that practices are bad. The practices that are bad are, first of all, when we look at how many contact attempts, calls, emails, et cetera, a company is making to the leads that come in, it's still, when we look across all those leads, the average is still less than two. That's just not going to get it done. I mean, that you're not going to reach very many people and get very many people to respond if you're only trying less than two times. You have to try hard enough to get people to respond, even if they've been on your website. And most organizations are not doing that. That's one of the things I love about tools like SalesLoft is being able to implement a cadence that says, here's what we're going to do. And it's not two calls, making sure that you're applying the right level of effort. The second is a lot of the times, and, and everybody who's ever gotten a call from an SDR, and I, you know, again, I've managed many hundreds of SDRs in my lifetime. Anybody who's ever gotten a call from them most likely thinks, I don't ever want that to happen to me again. Right? Uh, that experience is almost always uncomfortable, if not unpleasant. One contextual thing I think that I'm sure is on listeners' minds is what is an inbound lead? And at the very least, I think it's useful to separate into two contexts. One is, I'll call it a high priority or hot lead, right? It's, it's the person who came to your requested demo or contact us you know, with a sales query versus this other thing that companies like to call inbound leads, but I don't know that the prospects really think about that, which is I happen to consume a bunch of different white papers, reports, webinars. I just consumed some content and I was passively learning, but then the company thinks that's an inbound lead. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's a pretty good characterization of them. You could also put people come by your booth at a trade show into the first category. Uh, you know, if, if people come by and they uh, say, hey, I'm interested, can you show me a demo or something like that? That goes in the, the same category of people who fill out a form and say, show me a demo. And that's very different from uh, somebody who's consuming content who you've made to fill out a form in order to see your white paper or your webinar or whatever. I think that is a really important context. Uh, and without doubt, if somebody asks you to contact them, you should do that absolutely as fast as you possibly can. Get that to happen right away. The other thing that happens here is organizations tend not to put their best people on that inbound function. So if, if that inbound lead comes in, somebody says, contact me, 
they may still get a call from the most junior person in the company, like literally the most junior person in the company. And that's a questionable practice when somebody's, if somebody's come in and said, here, please contact me, I'm interested in your solution. So you may want to have somebody making that call who is capable of having a really good conversation, whether they're new or not. That has always puzzled me also that, sure, it's easier to book a meeting with a a prospect who comes inbound, but you're not just booking a meeting, right? You also need to develop need and or pain and potentially do some qualification. And that does take skill. It does. And when you think about what's on the line, uh, chances are, you know, when you add up all the money you're spending to drive that demand and get somebody to come fill out a form and say, I want to demo or something, you need to milk that. (laughs) This is a a point in your organization where you don't want any false negatives. And uh, I talk with our clients about false negatives and false positives a lot. And at the top of the funnel or top of the waterfall, everything you do is a filter that's either going to have prospects continue moving through a process with you or have them stop. And, you know, when somebody comes and fills out a form and says, contact me, they're begging to be (laughs) in a process. And you need to make sure that you don't have a false negative occur at that point. You don't have a situation where the prospect does get that call with you and then decides because that interaction isn't a very good one that they don't want to repeat it. We need to have very good resources on that set of prospects. And it's usually a very small percentage of the number of folks who are filling out a form. That's usually a pretty small percentage of them. They're worthy of a high level of attention. These are both costly things. The false negative is rejecting a viable prospect at the top of the funnel. Right. And the false positive is allowing a non-viable prospect through the screen. That's right. And they're not equivalent in my mind. So allowing a false positive through is not good. And that's what salespeople will complain about a lot. And it shows up in poor lead conversion rates and all of that. So definitely not good. And we don't want to have those. It kind of gums up the system. But I think of false positives as a disease that's treatable with medication and you can improve and live a nice life. (laughs) Um, False negatives, on the other hand, are a terminal disease that you can cure, but if you don't take action on it, it's going to kill you. False negatives mean there's revenue to be had. You're not going to have it, but your competitors are. That's not a sustainable business model for a long time. So getting that balance right is important. And I think you know, paying the utmost level of attention to people who come to your website and say, I'm interested, have somebody uh, call me is very important. I would still run that through the filter of, is that person who wants to have a conversation with you, do they work in a company that could actually buy your stuff? Sure. I've got four principles for account-centric teleprospecting, and that's the first one, right? It's the only reason to ever call somebody or ever email somebody is that that somebody works in a company that could buy something from you and is capable of implementing the thing that you buy. If they aren't, then they're not worth spending time on. If they are, then a few of the other principles that we could talk about apply to them. Number one, again, is if that person is worth calling, if the lead is worth calling, it's because they're in a a viable account for you. The second is that if they're in a viable account for you, chances are they're not the only person who's going to be involved in that buying process. They're not the only person you're going to have to sell to. As an organization, you should know what that looks like. You know, what does that buying group or buying committee in your prospects and customers look like? Is it two people or is it five people? Is it six people? 
Do you have multiple buyer personas that you're consciously attracting to your website that you have content for, et cetera? And so that's a really important thing to understand, because if we've just decided that we're only calling this guy because he works in a company that we care about, and we know that this person isn't going to be working alone if they're going to buy something from us, then the third principle is, if you know that it's an account you care about and you have this signal that there's something going on there, does it make any sense to just try one person and give up? And my third principle is no, it doesn't. And it probably results in a lot of false negatives. We wouldn't necessarily say go down the list and try uh, everybody in the company until you find somebody who's going to talk to you. But there should be at least a couple of different buyer personas, types of people inside that organization that could help you understand whether they're in market for the kind of thing you sell and whether you're going to get to compete for that business. So just leaving after trying one, probably not the right thing. You know, you can always use some prioritization to decide how much effort you apply, but that's the fourth principle. For any given account, there's an optimal range of effort that you should apply. It's not one or two calls and it's not unlimited. For high value accounts where somebody's just come to your website and said, you know, contact me, if they don't pick up the phone after three attempts, you're not going to stop and you're also going to try to find somebody else to talk to, right? Uh, for a lower value account, probably going to do the same thing, but maybe you're not going to apply as much effort before you say, okay, I think I'll take no response as uh, a no. If you have signals coming in, uh, in the form of inbound leads or even just web traffic that say, hey, there's something going on here, the approach can't be, we're just going to follow up on this like a lead, like any other lead. It has to be, we need to understand what's happening in that account. Are they going to buy something like what we sell? And do we get to compete for that business? If I get an inbound from somebody who has a you know, lower title in the organization, should I respond to that person or not? I say, yeah, absolutely. But not only that person. And so I think, first of all, the person lower in the organization who filled out the form may very well have done so at the behest of somebody higher up in the organization who doesn't want to get a call from your SDR. Just saying, I'm going to call the VP because a, a manager filled out the form is doing the thing probably that the VP really doesn't want <laughs> to do, right? It's also just missing an opportunity to make a connection inside that organization. So I would absolutely follow up with that manager person or lower level person who you're more likely to get a response from. But I also wouldn't stop there, especially when you know that you've got a buying committee that's uh, multiple people. You know, If you aren't able to reach that lower level person right away, get out of voicemail and go find somebody to talk to. Do not let your SDRs simply make phone calls and hit email all day. Get out of voicemail, do something, and go find somebody to talk to. You just never know what you'll learn. And it's not going to help you reach the right person very often, but it'll get you to the right person more often than just leaving voicemails all day. I know you had some thoughts on how you actually begin the conversation with an inbound lead. What do you recommend there? So two types here. One is the type we mentioned earlier where somebody's filled out a form and said, contact me. That's about as straightforward as a follow-up could be and really needs to uh, just focus on whatever clues you have about what that person was interested in. There's no magic here that I'm aware of other than saying, you know, we wanted to get in touch with you really quickly to begin the conversation that you wanted to have. All of the other leads that are considered inbound leads where we're following up with somebody who downloaded a white paper or somebody who uh, you know, has been to the website five times and filled out a form or something like that 
probably most people uh, in the audience will have had the experience of downloading a white paper and, and then getting a call from an SDR who wants to know how you liked it, wants some sort of book report from you on the content of the white paper. So most prospects, one, uh, unless you get them right away, they're probably not going to remember that they even did it. They're not going to remember what was in it, and they sure don't want a pop quiz about their impressions of it. I would say probably 75, 80% of the SDRs who are following up on the kind of content leads are starting with some conversation about the content or the impressions about that piece of content. And that approach is very likely to cause any normal human to just want to hang up the phone as fast as they can, right? It's, it's unpleasant. It's not what they expected. It puts pressure on them right away. Uh, to come up with an answer. And the answer is likely going to be, I'm not interested, <laughs> you know, just to start with. And there's a simple change to that process that any rep can do, which makes for a much more comfortable, much more likely entrance to that conversation, which is simply, if you know what they were looking at, because they downloaded a white paper or whatever, then um, enable your SDRs to know what that paper, that asset, whatever it was, was about. What's the problem that a prospect would be trying to solve when they're looking at that content? What's the business issue that that's about? And then your SDR, when they reach that prospect, should say, hey, you know, I'm calling because you just downloaded a white paper about X, Y, and Z. I don't expect you to remember that, but people who look at that white paper are interested in that white paper, look at it because their organizations are trying to solve a problem like X, Y, and Z. And, and we, we solve that problem for clients like you all the time. And I'd love to talk to you about that. By just telling the prospect why you think they would have downloaded that piece of content or looked at that, you completely take them off the hook, right? You, they don't have to come up with that on their own. It might jog their memory and you might be right. And if you're right, that makes you look smart. Uh, it makes the entrance to the conversation easy. And they're somewhat likely at that point to just tell you about it. If you're wrong, that's almost as good uh, because people love to correct you. And if you're wrong, they will tell you why you're wrong. And that's the conversation that you needed to have when you were calling anyway. So that simple change, not asking the prospect to tell you what something was about, but telling them what you think it was about, then giving them a proof point that this is something that, you know, this is what you do, this you talk to people like them and organizations like theirs that have problems like the one that you're talking about all the time that's what you do, that makes it much more likely that that prospect is going to feel comfortable engaging with you. As you were saying that, I was thinking an even softer, but still hopefully useful approach is when you call them and you say, hey, this is XYZ from Acmeco. We help people. And then when you insert value proposition, the value proposition would be tuned to the value proposition tied to whatever they downloaded. So it just says, you're more likely to get a hit on that particular value prop as opposed to other value props that your company offers. That's right. Yeah. I mean, the more you customize that approach and then give the prospect something that they can work with, as opposed to asking them to do the work of figuring out why it is that they might have been on your website, the better off you'll be. So I think that that approach works well. The next thing that happens in that call, and so when I said, you know, you probably don't remember, you know, one of the techniques that I've learned that helped make me comfortable in selling situations, and I'm just not a natural salesperson, but one of the things that makes me more comfortable is when I know that there are objections that are going to come up, I answer them in advance every time. So when I know a prospect's not likely to remember the white paper or the whatever it was, 
then I say it first right? so that they don't have to worry about it. It takes them off the hook. It makes me more likable. It removes the, the discomfort in that conversation. If I'm working for a company that I know this prospect is never heard of, then I'm going to say that. Right? And once I say it, it's no longer a reason for them not to have the conversation with me. That's one of the most important things, especially in SDR, somebody who's going to hear the same three or four or five objections time after time after time. When you're battling back after that objection's already come out, your chances of success are very low and it's difficult. When you can answer those simple objections in advance, you're still going to lose most of the time. That's the nature of the job. But you'll be successful much more often and it's much less stressful. It's easier and it's going to end up in less kind of banter back and forth and objection handling and all of that. What do you look for in a successful tone for a telesalesperson? Confident, but not cocky, right? So you've got to sound like you know what you're doing and you belong in the conversation you're having. Because if you don't, then you know the people that you're calling, especially if you're an SDR, if you're an SDR and you're calling VP of engineering or something to, to talk to them about their business, there's nothing in the world that you know more about than that VP of engineering. And that may apply even to your products. Right? It's not like you're going to know more than they do. Uh, but you have to feel like you belong in that conversation and that you serve a purpose there. And that purpose is to connect that person and their business issues with your solutions. Right? You're not going to solve the problems for them in that conversation, but you've got to step into that conversation saying, you know, I've got something to offer you. And that thing I have to offer you is you're not going to buy something today, but we're going to find out whether our solutions might be a fit for your business problems. And that's the approach that we take. And I often think about that. I would say to our reps, you know, you're the doctor who walks into the examination room and you've got a job to do. Uh, you know, by the end of this 90 second conversation, you need to understand what the issues are and whether, you know, you're going to have a longer conversation or move something or you're done. Quite interestingly, some of the best sellers I've seen are people who have a moderate pace, not a fast pace, and tend to talk on the softer side. To me, moderate and soft conveys calm confidence. If you just throw a smile on top of that softer tone and more moderate tone, then you get calm confidence. You can fake it till you make it on that. Yep. I think that's absolutely true. For somebody in an SDR role, especially when you're early career, I mean, you have this tremendous opportunity to talk to people you would never otherwise get to talk to, but you have that chance in this job and you have a chance to learn continually. But the way you do that is by getting into conversations with these folks. And so if you're curious and you really want to know, like, what is the situation inside that company? You know, do you have this business problem that we solve and what does that look like? And let's figure out whether our solution could offer important value to your company. If that's your approach, then I think you have that, you can have that calm confidence. If your approach is, I'm hoping that you're going to like the thing that I say, I don't know how you could possibly be <laughs> calm and confident when that's your approach. If you can be curious and then for those objections that you know are there all the time, get them out yourself. If you continually get battered over the head with the same thing, it's going to have an impact on your well-being. So, you know, if somebody answers the phone and goes, you have just heard an objection, deal with it, right? <laughs> you know, address it and don't hope it goes away. It's not going to go away. So, you know, say, look, it sounds like I caught you at a really bad time or am I the 35th salesperson who's called you today? You know, whatever that is that allows you to say, I belong here. I recognize that you weren't expecting my call and you may have other things to do. Totally fine. 
that's what's going on. So deal with the reality of it. When we think we're going to turn every prospect into a buyer, when we attach our lives worth to whether this conversation goes well, then you can get pretty far off kilter. But if you're curious and if you just think about those things that are going to come up all the time and just try to get them out on the table and get them over with, then I think you can have that calm confidence. If you reflect on the stuff we've talked through already, what do you want to leave people with? One of the things is that we really think that what's happening over the last uh, couple of years in uh, B2B when it comes to the SDR kinds of functions in B2B is that inbound and outbound motions should be becoming much more similar. So when you think about those four principles that are really account-centric principles, your outbound SDRs would never, I hope, just get one name inside a target account, make a few calls to that one name, and then give up, right? That would be not a very good outbound practice. And I hope nobody's doing that. If you're doing outbound, you're always going to go try to knock on a few doors and try to find somebody inside that organization who can be your champion. Well, it shouldn't really be any different for inbound. Look at that inbound lead as an opportunity to go prospecting inside that account. Now you've got a signal that says, okay, now it's time to come talk to us, right? So go do that. And don't call the lead if it's not in an account that you think you could sell something to. But if it is, then make a concerted effort. Organizations should make the decision about how much effort, not the individual SDR who's uh, 22 and in their first job. Outstanding. Carrie, it was such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. If people do want to reach out to you to learn about things, what's the best way to find you? LinkedIn. And I'm at uh, Forrester, of course, where Serious Decisions was acquired by Forrester back at the beginning of the year. So we're still Serious Decisions. Uh, you can find us at seriousdecisions.com. You can also find us through uh, Forrester. And my current uh, Twitter handle is Carrie Sirius. It's S-I-R-I-U-S. So happy to have you follow me there and any number of conferences or presentations. Once again, I'm your host, Jeremy Donovan from SalesLoft. Laura Hall is our executive producer. Our artwork is by Greg Klingshern. This episode was edited by Peter Lopinto. Subscribe to us on your favorite app to learn more immediately actionable best practices from our awesome guests. Thanks for listening to the Hey Salespeople podcast.